Father, thank you for your grace and your mercy and your goodness towards us. Thank you uh, that you are truly great. As we sung in that song, uh, beyond our ability to comprehend, you are great and awesome, and you are worthy of our praise. And so thank you that we could spend some time bringing our praises to you with our voices and our hearts this morning. I pray, Lord, that we would uh, open our hearts now to hear your voice through the scriptures. I pray that you would speak to us through Ephesians chapter 4, that you would help us to know what it is that you're communicating to us this morning, that you would build up your church as a result of our study this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we were talking about the fact that we are called to be rooted and grounded in love. There's the vertical aspect of God's love towards us, which then translates into a horizontal aspect of our love for each other. And we looked at the idea of a giant sequoia tree, or more accurately, a giant sequoia grove, as a way of understanding this. And even though they grow super tall, their root system is really shallow. But it spreads out really far, and it intertwines with the other roots of the sequoia trees, making for a strong community of trees. We are called to intertwine our roots with each other, to be rooted and grounded in love with God and with each other. And the goal, as we'll see today, is that we might be mature, that we would grow in maturity. Today we begin the second half of Ephesians. Our main theme for Ephesians is this idea of being reconciled for life. The first three chapters are the theological argument that we are reconciled to God, reconciled to each other through the death of Jesus on the cross. Chapters four through six then are the practical application of that. How do we live our lives in light of the fact that we have been reconciled to God and to each other? So if you are more of a practical person, I hope that you rejoice that we are now into the practical half of Ephesians. It will get much more practical, especially as we get into chapter 5. This morning, we got two main parts. Part one is this. Jesus gives gifts to his people. I like the sound of that. I like to get gifts. So Jesus gives gifts to his people. We're going to read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. And if you're following along in one of the pew Bibles, it's on page 977. Paul says this, as he transitions from the theological argument to the practical application, he says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So right away, First, ha- first part of the second half of Ephesians becomes very practical, very down-to-earth. It talks about how we are to love each other. So there's a few things mentioned here. Humility. Now, sometimes we have a wrong idea of what humility is. We tend to think of if we're humble, if we have humility, then we, we kind of think less of ourselves. We're, we're down on ourselves. Well, I'm not as good as that other person. That is not humility. Humility is thinking rightly about yourself. If you think too high of yourself, that is pride, but in a kind of weird, twisted way, if you think too lowly or artificially lowly of yourself, you insist on speaking lowly of yourself, that actually also comes from a root of pride. We wouldn't normally think about it that way, but that is 
That is the root of where that comes from. Instead, humility is thinking rightly about yourself and considering others more important or more significant than yourself. Not that the other people in the room are more important or significant, but that you consider them. You live in such a way as to give them preference. So we see this very clearly in the book of Philippians where Jesus himself is described in this way. This is Philippians 2, 3 through 7. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to or held on to, but instead emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So that is our picture of humility. Jesus, God, the second member of the Trinity, humbles himself, takes on bodily form to be one of us in order to save us. That's the kind of humility that Paul's calling us to here. The second thing he mentions is gentleness. Gentleness does not mean weakness. Rather, it is meekness. It is strength under control. You can be really strong and really gentle at the same time. You can be really weak and really violent at the same time. But true gentleness is strength under control. We see this very clearly in God and how he deals with us. He is infinitely strong. He could unmake everything with a snap of his fingers. And yet he is gentle towards us. Patience. Parents, I know this is a challenge. It's hard to be patient with our kids. It's hard to be patient with our spouses. It's hard to be patient with our coworkers. It's hard to be patient really with everybody. And that's because we have an idea of how things should be progressing along the timeline that we have dictated. Patience yields that timeline to God. I'm willing to trust the timing of God in this relationship, in my marriage, with my kids, in my job, whatever it is. God's timing, I'm going to trust it. It's perfect. That's the idea of patience, humbly submitting your timeline to God's. And then bearing with one another in love. I don't know if any of you ever have ever gone backpacking. So um, I've spent many nights out on the trail backpacking and uh, Sometimes if it's a really long day, I get to where I'm going, and I'm tired. I'm worn out. I just want to put the pack down. There have been some times where I've been backpacking by myself, and I'm not to where I'm going yet, but I am worn out. I don't know how I'm going to keep going. And it'd be really nice if at that point, a big strong guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger just showed up in the middle of the trail and said, would you like me to carry your pack for you? Right? He would bear the burden for me. We need to do that for each other. Sometimes we're worn out. The load that we've been carrying in life is too heavy. We can come alongside somebody who's worn out. We can bear that burden, carry the pack for them. That's part of what it means when it says bearing with one another in love. But it also can mean look, there's some people that just really get on your nerves. Maybe you're angry, you're frustrated, or you're just tired of somebody. You bear with that person. 
You continue to love that person. You continue to invest in the friendship with that person in love. Not because you want to, but because that's what Jesus calls us to. And then look at verse 3. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice, Paul does not say, create unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We can't do that. But when the Holy Spirit regenerates us, when we are saved by Jesus, we are made into new creations, and we are united with God in Christ, and we are united with each other, making a, a unity, a unity of the Spirit and a bond of peace. And then we are called, in verse 3, to be eager to maintain that unity and that bond. If we're truthful, most of the time we just don't even think about that. And sometimes we don't want anything to do with that. We don't want to work for, we don't want to be eager for maintaining the bond that we have with each other because it can be hard work. Sometimes we, as Christians, are content to just live our lives separated from the rest of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And maybe we come together on Sunday mornings, but we're not connected with them throughout the week. There's really not much of a bond there. But it's safer that way for our hearts, and so we like to live that way. Now, the next three verses read kind of like a poem. Many people believe it's actually an early Christian creed that the Christians would recite or even sing to each other to remind themselves of this truth. Verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Notice the whole Trinity's mentioned in there. You've got the Spirit. You've got Jesus mentioned as Lord. You've got God the Father. Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is emphasizing unity in the Trinity and how that translates into unity for us as all members of one body. Yesterday, uh, last Sunday after the service, Russell spoke for a few minutes, and one of the things that he talked about was the idea that each part of the body is needed and has a particular role. Paul's going to hit that over and over again in Ephesians, and he's starting to hint at that here as he talks about one body. Body has many parts. And then he goes on to say, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. All right, so now that first, uh, that second word there, grace, that's the word charis, which actually is the Greek word for gift. And then at the end, we got Christ's gift, which actually uses a different Greek word, but it's the idea, grace, gifts are given to each member of the body according to Christ's gift. And what does that mean? Well, we're going to find out in just a minute, but first, we have a little bit of a demonstration of unique gifting. So Barb, I'm going to ask you, Barb, will you come up and get ready? All right, so this is Barb Wilbur. Wilbur. She likes to be called Barbie. I just always call her Barb, and I remember later I'm supposed to call her Barbie. And uh, hopefully you've gotten to know Barb over the years. She usually sits in back, but she's going to play a special role for us this morning. She's going to illustrate for us some unique gifting. And you may be surprised to know that Barbie can play the accordion and the keyboard at the same time. So... She's going to demonstrate for us. Now, I know she's probably a little nervous, 
a little nervous, but she's going to sit down and she's going to play for us a couple verses of Amazing Grace. And uh, I, I don't know if you guys have ever, you know, remembered like in fourth or fifth grade when you're doing like a band recital or something, you get really nervous with that. So we're going we're gonna to pray for Barb. She's going to do a good job. Give her a hand. <laughs> Barb, would you, would you play it one more time for us? Just go through it one more time. Okay. All right, thank you. Now that you're all warmed up. Great. Just one more time. That'd be good. Thank you, Barb. Good job. Good job. <laughs> All right. I didn't ask her to play Amazing Grace, but she just picked that one on her own. Remember, grace means gift. Now, why in the world did we do this? Well, we just read in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So this is play on words, according to, accordion, gift. All right. Now, I know that's cheesy. I was born in Green Bay. You expect cheesiness, right? But here's what I want. I want that picture to stick in your mind so that every time you come across the word according, and especially with a gift in the New Testament, that you will think of Barb and her surprising ability to play the accordion and the keyboard at the same time. If you look up every instance of the word accord or according in the New Testament, you will find that actually most of those references are not particularly encouraging. They talk about being judged according to our works, being compared our works according to the law of God. But in this particular passage, the word according is meant to be very encouraging to us. We are given gifts according to Christ or the measure of Christ's gift. Now, Paul's going to explain what he means by that and how this works together. He's going to quote from Psalm 68. He's going to use the picture of King David, earthly King David, returning from battle with the spoils of war. He's, he's got all this great loot, and he's going to give it to his people. That's the picture in Psalm 68, and then Paul's going to apply that to Jesus as conquering king, full of gifts from his conquering battle, giving gifts to us. Verse 8, therefore it says, here's going to quote from Psalm, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. That's pointing back to David, but he's also then applying it to Jesus. 
In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? Now, that's not in the psalm. That's Paul adding stuff to this. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So Paul looks back to 68, says, amazing King David returns from battle with a bunch of loot. He gives gifts to his people, not because they're particularly great, but because he is great. And he is the conquering king. He applies that to Jesus. Jesus is full of greatness, full of good things, and he gives those gifts to us as the conquering king. And how, do, how is he the conquering king? That's why he talks about the one who ascended is the same one who descended into the lower regions of the earth. That's not, that's not saying he went to what we would call hell. It's saying he was buried in the earth. And you could make an argument that it's the Old Testament idea of Hades, but it is not what we would think of as hell. If you grew up reciting the Apostles' Creed in church, that might surprise you because the Apostles' Creed says he descended into hell, rose again on the third day. But this is talking about primarily the burial of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and then he rises from the dead as the conquering king, and then he ascends to heaven. So David ascends to the earthly throne in Jerusalem. Jesus ascends to the heavenly throne in heaven, and he distributes gifts as the conquering king to his people. That's what is going on here. So how did that work? If you remember in the book, beginning of the book of Acts, which we studied a while ago, it says this, but Jesus says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So this is, this is your mission, and I'm going to empower you with gifts. Those gifts are going to come specifically through the Holy Spirit. They are spiritual gifts. And then what happens right after that? And when he said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. He ascends to heaven. So that's what Paul is talking about here. At the moment of Jesus' ascension, he says to the people, I'm going to give you what you need. It's going to come to you through the Holy Spirit. That's how we are gifted today. They are spiritual gifts. Now, if you grew up in a particular kind of church, you may have certain ideas of what spiritual gifts mean. You may even have pictures of some kind of crazy stuff in your mind. But Paul here is going to speak specifically about certain gifts very limited number that he's going to talk about today. Part two is this. What are the gifts and what are they for? So part one was Jesus gives gifts to his people. Part two is what are those gifts and what are they for? So verse 11. This is back in chapter four of Ephesians. And he, that is speaking of Jesus, gave the, here are the gifts, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the gifts are people. Now, not all spiritual gifts. You look in 1 Corinthians, you get a list of different kinds of spiritual gifts. Right? But in this case, what Paul is talking about is the gifts are people. Let's talk about what these people are. First, the apostles. Apostle means one who is sent out. So in that sense, all Christians are apostles because we're all sent out on mission. But that's not what Paul is talking about. He's referring to the apostles, the first leaders, the, 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 
the rulers, the organizers, the church planters, the ones who were the primary leaders in the first couple generations of the early church. Started out as 12 of them. A few more were added later, like Paul, the guy who's writing this. He's added later as an apostle. To be considered an apostle, you had to know Jesus personally. You had to sit under the teaching of Jesus directly, be able to ask Jesus questions. That happened with Paul in a very personal way where for approximately three years he met with Jesus, the risen Jesus, and was trained by him. These apostles are an incredibly unique, small group of men that God used to jumpstart the spread of the early church. They led the missionary efforts that spread the church all over the Mediterranean, and this is really key for today, they were used by God to write the New Testament. Now, not all New Testament books are written by an apostle. For example, Mark is not an apostle. Luke is not an apostle. But the things that Mark and Luke write are the message of the apostles that they accompanied. Every book in the New Testament has its origin in the teaching of the apostles. Next, he mentions the prophets. Now, a prophet gets a message from God and delivers it to the people. And we tend to think of that as all foretelling the future. We might think of the book of Revelation, which talks about the end times and the things that are going to happen. And you might look at what's going on in the world right now and wonder, are we in those end times? And read the book of Revelation, try to figure out what's coming. But most of the time in the Bible, prophecy is not, this is coming in the future, but it's, this is what you need to know right now. This is your call to repentance This is your call to holy living. This is how God wants you, his people, to live right now. That's what most of the prophecy is in the Bible. In the case of these, the prophets, again, it's pointing back to the writing of the New Testament. Each of those guys used to write a New Testament book is functioning as a prophet, inspired by the Holy Spirit, giving the message in written word to God us. It tells us what we need to know. It tells us, in fact, everything we need to know to live the life that God is calling us to. Then the third thing he mentions is evangelists. Now, you may have a picture in your mind of an evangelist. You may think of a guy in a swanky suit on TV, and you may be really turned off by that. Or maybe you think of like the late Billy Graham filling stadiums with people. We are all, as Christians, called to do the work of the evangelist, to share the gospel, the good news, with other people. But Paul is speaking very specifically about a particular group of people who were not only gifted in sharing the gospel, but again, were used by God to write the New Testament. Do you see the theme here? If you opened up a Bible to the first page, the beginning of Matthew, first page of the New Testament, it would say at the top, the gospel according to Matthew. If you flipped over to Mark, it would say the the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, the gospel according to John. That word gospel is the Greek word euangelion. Kalen, we've got a slide for that. And then the Greek word euangelistes becomes our word evangelist. You can see how they're very closely related there. 
as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are used by the Spirit to write those four books, which we call the Gospels, they are the evangelists, they are the gospel writers, writing what, for years, the church would refer to as the evangel, the gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this, here's the main idea I want you so far with these three guys, apostles, prophets, evangelists. They are word workers. Their primary role in the early church was working in the word of God. Most specifically, writing it down, preserving it for the rest of the church for the rest of time. Now what about the two more gifts that are listed, listed here? Shepherds and teachers. Some people believe that those are actually two different things. Some people believe, no, it's really a compound, a shepherd teacher. Well, whether it's a list of four or whether it's a list of five, we're not really sure, but I'm going to go with the second. And it's a list of four, and this is talking about shepherd teachers, or what we would call today pastors and elders. There are no apostles like in the New Testament. There are no prophets writing New Testament books. There are no evangelists writing New Testament books today. But there are pastors and elders, shepherd teachers. The role of a pastor and elder is to shepherd the flock of God. As a sheep, I am also a shepherd. Get to do both roles. What does a shepherd, in an earthly sense, what does a shepherd do? A shepherd must care for his sheep. So we're talking about church. As a shepherd, I must pray for you, the sheep. I must befriend you, not just, not just dispense information to you, but know you and be your friend. Talk with, counsel, comfort, serve, visit, help. Sometimes administer first aid. Set a spiritual broken bone. The shepherd does all of those things. The shepherd also feeds the sheep. And the way that a shepherd feeds his sheep when we're talking about church is primarily through the Word of God. When you come here on Sunday morning, we spend most of our time preaching through a passage of Scripture because that is meant to feed you. Multiple times in the New Testament, the Word of God is referred to as spiritual food for the soul of Christians. If you are feeling worn out, weak, tired, not growing in your faith, going backwards in your faith, it's probably because you're spiritually hungry from not feeding on the Word of God. One meal a week, Sunday morning, is not enough to sustain you or grow you. I can feed you, I could, I could be the best preacher in the world, far from that. I could be the best preacher in the world and feed you the most gourmet spiritual meal every Sunday morning, and if that's all you eat all week, you're going to be really malnourished and weak. Are you feeding yourself through the rest of the week? A shepherd is also called to protect and guard the sheep. It's on purpose that God refers to his people, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, as sheep. It's not really a compliment. Sheep can't even take care of themselves. Sheep can't defend themselves. They have no natural way of defending themselves against any enemy, 
And yet God chooses to call us his sheep. Now, there is one exception to that. I don't know if you guys are Far Side fans, but Gary Larson, the guy who writes the Far Side comic, he reminds us, and I'll show the picture up here and I'll read you the caption. He says, it is a known fact that the sheep that give us steel wool have no natural enemies. I love Gary Larson's humor. Sheep that give us steel wool. We, though, have many natural enemies. False teachers, false prophets, con men, distractions and attractions of life. Satan has a whole bag of tricks that he uses to try to trap and destroy God's sheep. And as a pastor, as a shepherd teacher from this passage, one of my roles is to try to guard and protect you. And the primary way that I do that is, again, through the Word of God. I want to pre- present to you every Sunday and in our meetings, counseling throughout the week, I want to present to you the uncorrupted Word of God so that you develop a taste for the Word of God. And if anybody tries to present you with a counterfeit, you know that that doesn't taste right because you know what the Word of God is supposed to taste like. Sometimes, though, we don't even need a wolf sneaking in to cause us trouble. Sometimes we cause trouble ourselves. I've I've had plenty of conversations and worked through plenty of things with people where they've caused a mess in their life. And we work through it, we apply the Bible to the situation, we get out of that mess, and then a few days or weeks or months later, they're back in that same mess. We tend to make messes for ourselves. A few years back, I saw this short video online. I saved it as a, as a continual reminder to myself of how we as sheep get ourselves in trouble. In the video, you're going to see uh, a young sheep. This is in the Middle East somewhere, and the sheep is stuck in a ditch. Somebody has, has dug a, a trench along the side of the road. They're getting ready to lay what looks like a gas pipe in the trench, and the sheep is stuck in the trench. So, Kaelin, let's watch this short video. So we got a little shepherd boy grabbing the leg of the sheep, trying to rescue him. Pull him that poor sheep. How long was he in there? He's so excited. <laughs> right back <laughs> into the trench. I think the sheep probably needs some glasses. His depth perception is a little off. There's going to be a replay here of him jump, jumping up. Yay! Oh, no. That is us, right? We're in a mess. Our shepherd pulls us out, sets us free. We go jumping off into the sunset and jump right back into the trench that we were in. This leads us to the last thing I want to point out about the role of the shepherd and the teacher. That is that a shepherd and teacher must correct and discipline the sheep. It's just it's part of the job. Sometimes a sheep needs a little nudge to the left or the right with the staff. Sometimes, and you guys have probably all been there, sometimes a sheep needs a good swat in the rear to get going in the right direction. That discipline, that correction, is never pleasant. But it is necessary. And if a shepherd refuses to correct and discipline his sheep... Like there was nothing that little guy could do because the 
sheep was just off running. But, but if you just let that happen over and over and over again, that would not be loving to the sheep. A shepherd must discipline and correct his sheep and must do it in a loving way. And if he does not do that, he is not loving his sheep. You see the parallel there with parenting. Parents, grandparents, if you do not correct and discipline and train your children, you are not loving your children. Some people have this philosophy that I'll just let my kids do whatever they want. I'll let them go into the world and discover how bad the world is, and I hope that they will then choose Christ. That is utter foolishness. We are called, as parents and grandparents, to train up our children in the way that they should go, in the way of God. And that includes correcting them and disciplining them, sometimes standing in front of them saying, stop, you're going the wrong direction. Here is the way to life. All right. What's the goal in all this? Go back to verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. So the goal, God gives these ministers, these people, these leaders, to equip the saints for the work of ministry so that the body of Christ, the church, is built up. Now, this is upside down for many of us how we think about church. If you think of me as the hired hand, pay me to sit and study all week and be able to present to you a coherent message on Sunday, you're not thinking in the same way that the New Testament presents us. If you think that you have hired me in order to do the work of ministry, whether that's the preaching or the teaching of the classes or the counseling or the pulling of the weeds outside or fixing of the stuff in the church or whatever it is, if you think that you have called me to do that work, you're missing the point of what Paul's saying. Yes, I participate in all those things, but my calling as a shepherd and teacher is the equipping of the saints. Who are the saints? You guys, if Christ has saved you, you're the saints for the work of ministry. As you think about where we are as a church right now, the things that we are particularly weak in, this verse addresses those things. How is the church built up? How is the church strengthened? When the saints are doing the work of ministry. Now, in order for you to be equipped to do the work of ministry, you not only need somebody willing to equip you, but you need to be willing to be equipped, eager to be equipped, eager to serve. So like last week after the service, Russell shared about how we need people serving in different positions, and he focused in specifically on the, the financial team, and he said... We need somebody to step up and be the new leader for the financial team, to take care of keeping track of things and making the reports and, and all the things that go into that. We need somebody to do that. We can help you. We can train you. We can encourage you. We can equip you. But we need somebody willing to say, yes, I will do that. I will take the risk. I'm not really sure what I'm doing but I will take the risk and be equipped for that work of ministry. And when that happens, the church is built up. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness in Christ. So he's saying it a bunch of different ways here, but the idea is the gifts are given to equip the saints, to build up the church so that we all become mature 
in Christ. And that's not talking about our bodies or graying hair or anything like that. It's talking about spiritual maturity. Are you more spiritually mature? Are you more like Christ than you were last week or last year? Are you moving on the path towards spiritual maturity? As you look at your life, are you stuck? Are you going backwards? Or are you going forwards? Now, if you're stuck or going backwards, I don't want you to feel a guilt trip this morning. I want this to actually be good news because you can take steps even today to be moving towards maturity. None of us here are fully mature. All of us need to be maturing. So all of us need to be moving in the direction of maturity, taking steps in the direction of maturity. So what do you need to be doing, changing, to be moving towards maturity, excuse me, in Christ? Verse 14. Why do we need to be mature? Because there are threats coming against us. Verse 14. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. If you've ever taken a small child to the beach and there have been nice waves, you understand what this is talking about. You have to watch the child constantly because as they kind of wander in at the edge of the beach, it's very easy for them to get in too far and the waves to start tossing them around and it's easy for the child to drown. Just two weeks ago, west coast of Michigan, South Haven, really big waves. There's a red flag warning on the beach, and yet a lot of people were swimming because it's a lot of fun. Seven-year-old child is struggling out in the waves. 33-year-old man goes in to save him. They both drown. It is easy to get in over your head, to get tossed around by the waves, flapped around by the wind, and to be harmed or even destroyed. And that is, that's the threat that Paul is warning us about here. The way to combat that threat is to grow in maturity, in Christ-likeness. Every day of your life, you face some kind of temptation or challenge or threat to your walk with Christ. The way that you get ready to be victorious over those things is through the mundane, everyday work of growing in maturity, becoming more like Jesus. How will we be able to stand against these winds of false doctrine, this human cunning and craftiness, the deceitful schemes? Our enemy is really good at deceitful schemes. How will we be able to stand strong against those things? How does that happen? Let's look at our last couple verses here. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's the big goal at the end there. The body grows and builds itself up in love. Do you want our church to be strong and healthy? Then we need to be building up each other as the parts of the body so that it is fully equipped and fully matured 
to be what God has designed it to be. How does that happen? Well, at least part of that is answered in verse 15, where it says that we are to be speaking the truth in love to each other. Notice, even the real active parts of our application here keep coming back to the idea of the word. This makes sense. If the gifts that are given are those word workers, then it keeps coming back to the word. Do we speak with each other in our marriages, in our families, church on Sunday morning, small group, Bible studies, discipling relationships? Do we speak the truth in love to each other? Naturally, that doesn't happen. We tend to speak falsehoods to each other or half-truths or quarter-truths or eight-truths. We tend to love ourselves rather than the other person, but spiritually, supernaturally, the, the Holy Spirit works in us so that we can speak the truth in love to each other. And the result of that is the building up of the body towards maturity. Each of you here needs the other person in this room, and they need you. Here's a practical way of applying this. What if on Sunday mornings... You came with the mindset and the prayer on the way in. Lord, who do you need me to speak the truth and love to this morning? And maybe you're having a conversation with someone who is beaten down, discouraged, feels like life has fallen apart, and you can, in love, speak the truth to them and say, you are a child of God. God loves you. He wants good for you. He is working in this tough situation in your life. Keep going. Don't give up. He is with you. Every Sunday, there's somebody here who needs that kind of a message. Or maybe it's a more challenging thing where the, where the truth kind of hurts but is still spoken in love. Maybe you're talking to somebody and you realize this person right now is, is entering into gossip. Will you stop the conversation and say, Sister, I love you, but this is gossip. You need to talk directly to that other person, not to me. In fact, I will go with you right now. Let's go talk to that person. That's the truth in love. And when we treat each other that way, both in the encouraging and the challenging way, the body of Christ is built Do you want our church to be the kind of place where we are full of truth and love for each other? Do you want our church to be stronger? Do you want our church to be a place where disciples are made, people are introduced to Jesus and saved by him, and built up, fully discipled, matured in him? Then our church must function as a body together, doing what God has called each member of the body to do, equipped by the shepherds and teachers with willing hearts to be used by God. So will you submit to this calling? Will you exercise your gifts for the building up of this local body? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us as a church, that you would build us up. I pray, Lord, that you would use us as a church for the saving of many and the discipling of many. I pray that you would use us as a light of the gospel in our community. 
We know, Lord, that there are many threats. There are many tricky, wily, evil schemes of our enemy who comes against us. But we know that you are our stronghold. You are our rock, our strength. You are our protector. You are the good shepherd. You love your sheep. You care for your sheep. You correct your sheep. All of those things, Lord. But you also laid down your life for your sheep. So we thank you for that. I pray, Lord, as we sing this last song about how you are always faithful, and even especially when we are facing those challenges that want to destroy us, that we as your helpless sheep, we can rest in your love, in your care for us as our good shepherd. In Jesus' name, amen.